Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I apologize for the long delay between episodes, but as some of you may know, I've been dealing with some pretty irritating health problems. I was recently diagnosed with a pretty shitty form of arthritis at the tender age of 34, and I've been dealing with it for over a year now, and it can make life really miserable and can make it really hard to do even the simplest of tasks. But this podcast gives me life, and I love hearing wonderful input from you guys. It's so motivating, and yeah, it's just a bright spot in my kind of rough existence right now, so thank you. And of course, massive shout out to my patrons. You guys are my favorites, and I am working diligently on getting a new patron episode up this weekend likely. If you would like to support the show, click the link in the show notes to check out my Patreon page. For a very small fee every month, you get access to digital bonus episodes as well as goodies in the mail from me when you first sign up and on a pretty regular basis as some of my long-term Patreon supporters can attest to. Every dollar helps since this is basically my only job right now. And if you would like to do a one-time donation, there is a PayPal link for that in the show notes. Everyone that donates $5 or more is going to get some goodies in the mail from me, including a sticker and a handwritten letter. And with all that out of the way, I just want to say I have a wonderful, fantastic, really exciting update on One of the cases that has been closest to my heart since I started doing this podcast. If you haven't heard the episode three, where I discussed the murder of Sophie Sergi, I would recommend doing that before you listen to this update. But just in case, I will give you a brief overview. Also, I wanted to thank Robin Warder of the Trail Went Cold podcast, nicest guy in podcasts, and he has a fantastic pretty long-running show. You should check it out. He remembered that I had covered this case and sent me the link to the news pretty much as soon as it broke. So it was uh, sort of my heart skipped a beat with happiness and I actually cried when I saw it. So I'll try not to get emotional as I discuss this, but it's one of those cases that really hit me hard and I know it hit a lot of you guys and Alaskans hard. So it's just a wonderful thing to see 
an update and see that, you know, justice might finally be served. So the case began on April 26, 1993, when a janitor at Bartlett Hall, which is a dorm building at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, stumbled upon the body of a murdered woman in the dorm bathroom. 20-year-old Sophie Sergi, an Alaska Native woman of Yupik descent, had been sexually assaulted, stabbed, and shot in the head before being left in the dorm bathroom for possibly up to 13 hours. The dorm building was very crowded and active, and while people had used the bathroom all day, she had actually been left behind the closed door of a private stall with a bathtub. So that's why it took that long for someone to come across her. She had been a student at UAF studying marine biology, but she had taken the semester off and was actually working to afford some dental and orthodontic work that she needed to get done. And she was actually only in town to get that dental work done and had just come in the night of her murder. She had planned to stay with a friend at Bartlett Hall. She hung out with her friend. They watched a movie and just chatted. Then her friend um, went off to go do something else. And Sophie was hanging out, talking to people. And sometime after about 2 a.m., she crossed paths with her killer. The initial investigation was hampered by timing and location. It was the week of finals and many people were flooding out of town as they wrapped up their last tests. And because of how many people lived in the building and nearby dorms, it was nearly impossible for the investigation to totally lock down the crime scene and lock down the buildings and make sure nobody left. There were no witnesses to the crime and seemingly no suspects. It was a real whodunit. And to me, I was just, I found it crazy that somebody could be shot in the middle of a busy dorm building in the middle of night and nobody heard it. That was what really got to me. Sophie's killer had left DNA evidence at the scene, which didn't match any profile in the national database and didn't match any samples that police took during the course of the investigation. The case eventually went cold and nearly 26 years on, it seemed like it might stay cold forever. Despite the extremely hard work that dedicated cold case investigators had put into the case over the years. The cold case warmed up in 2018 when investigators contacted a woman named Cece Moore, who works at a DNA engineering firm in California. She also works as a genetic genealogist, which is an extremely new discipline, and it's someone that uses DNA testing and old school genealogical research methods to discover familial connections, which can solve family mysteries and she can solve crimes with it. Moore had recently started helping various law enforcement entities to solve crimes with her particular set of skills. Troopers requested her help on Sophie's case and she was able to search within the GED match DNA database and found a second degree match to the sample which is only one degree removed from a parent-child relationship. Moore used this individual's family tree and narrowed it down to a nephew of the match, 
someone that was the right age, 44, and had been a student at UAF at the time of the murder. It was 44-year-old Stephen Downs. Investigators now had enough to get a warrant for Downs' DNA. He was tracked down in Auburn, Maine, where he had worked as a nurse for many years. His DNA matched the sample from the crime scene, and Downs was quickly arrested for first-degree murder and sexual assault over two decades after this horrible crime. And of course, now that he's been arrested, a lot of information has come forward surrounding him. He's worked as a nurse since 2011, and apparently there had been numerous complaints filed against him by different female co-workers at various places over the years. Apparently, he would say very inappropriate sexual things to them and would basically just hit on every woman around in an uncomfortable way. In one incident, this actually led to him getting fired. And he also had had other issues at his jobs, including medication errors, which is terrifying. And other former co-workers said that he could be rude to patients. And one co-worker stated that a female patient had actually requested her to be in the room when Downs was there because she was actually afraid of him. Apparently his disgusting behavior was only ever aimed at female co-workers and patients. Not surprising. After he was fired a few years ago, he had to complete mandatory training regarding boundaries and nursing in order to keep his license, but I could not find whether he had worked as a nurse since then, which was about 2016. At the time of Sophie's murder, Stephen was 18 years old, and he lived in Bartlett Hall, just one story up from where her body would be found. His roommate had later told investigators that he kept a 22 caliber gun in their dorm room, which was the same weapon that killed Sophie, and he is now in custody in Maine, awaiting extradition to Alaska, which of course he's resisting, insisting that some sort of mistake must have been made, but baby, you can't fight with DNA. You fucking did it. I so look forward to seeing this piece of shit get what's coming to him. It sounds like he did that one crime and has gone on to just be a pig to so many women over the years. So I don't think him getting locked up for life will be a great loss. Looking forward to him coming back to Alaska and uh, I'm betting the trial is going to be a while in the making, but of course I will keep you updated. I'm so happy. This story made me cry. I hope that you guys are as excited about it as I am. I'm just really so thankful that her family is hopefully going to get justice now because it's been so long. Anyways, <laughs> I feel emotional now. So with that out of the way, I'm going to move on to tonight's main story, which is one I've told before, but I've recently rewritten. And it's the story of Alaska's first and only school shooting. Bethel, Alaska is a town of around 6,000 people in Western Alaska. It's about 400 miles, almost directly west of Anchorage. It's the largest community in Western Alaska and in the unorganized borough, which encompasses nearly half of the entire state with 323,000 square miles total. 
It is very remote and not accessible by road. It was originally land of the native Alaskan Yupiks, who lived in that region for thousands of years before European contact. And the town is actually now over 60% Alaskan natives, nearly 30% of white people, with the rest of the population being small percentages of other races. Its population actually makes it the ninth largest town in Alaska, which probably pretty crazy to you guys that live in actually populated states. The town is on the Kuskokwim River and is known in the Dogmushik world for the Kuskokwim 300, a race where the first place finisher gets $100,000. However, in February 1997, the small hamlet would receive widespread media coverage when the first and only school shooting in Alaska history took place at Bethel High School. It was perpetuated by a 16-year-old student named Evan Ramsey, who would one day come to school with a shotgun and take the lives of the principal and a student. It wasn't the act of an evil mind, it was the act of an angry young man who had encountered nothing but trouble for much of his life. The day he went off to school, February 21st, with a shotgun hidden in the leg of his pants, he was actually doing his own version of an event that had landed his own father in prison for 10 years. In 1986, Evan's parents were still together and the whole family, including two other sons, was living in Anchorage. Evan's dad, Don, was working as a cab driver and had a lot of interest in local politics. He wanted to run an ad in the Anchorage Times, which was then the local paper. He really disliked Alaska Senator Frank Murkowski and wanted to run an ad expressing his views of the senator. But the publisher of the Times, Robert Atwood, had refused to run the ad. So one day in October of that year, Don took a couple of guns and went to the Anchorage Times building. His plan was to force the publisher to publish his ad. And while he did catch the building on fire with a smoke grenade and fired off several shots, thankfully, no one was hurt or killed in this very dramatic event. Don eventually received several convictions, including assault and attempted kidnapping. When Don went to prison for 10 years, this led to the rest of the family beginning to fall apart. Evan's mom began abusing alcohol and while she was not abusive to her children, alcohol caused her to have an inability to properly parent, which led to the three boys spending periods of their childhood in various foster homes. Some of these homes were fine, but like many foster children, Evan ended up experiencing both physical and sexual abuse during his time in foster care. What's worse is that during the times he and his brothers were able to live with their mom, she often had violent boyfriends that were living in the family home. One of the homes where he often lived was with a school employee named Sue Hare, who remembered Evan as being very sweet. She had been one of the few to provide a semi-normal life to the Ramsey boys, and she never could have predicted how Evan's life would turn out. In high school, Evan was bullied often. In an era that was almost completely before school shootings, 
definitely before they were as prevalent as they are now, bullying in schools was easier for students to get away with. Evan had a white dad and an Alaska Native mother, and he was called names for this. He wasn't a big guy, and he was shy. His bullies were relentless, and it got worse over time. His guardian, Sue, knew about some of this, but Evan had never really let her know just how terrible it had gotten. Over time, this teasing and instability in his life led to him having extreme anger issues. I'm sure many of you remember being a teenager and feeling somewhat powerless over your life situation. And over time, he just wanted a way to act out, to express all the rage that was within him. Within the month prior to the shooting, Evan's father had gotten out of prison and his girlfriend had broken up with him. Eventually, everything had got to be too much and he came up with a vague plan. He found a shotgun at Sue's house and had some younger friends show him how to use it. His plan that day was to storm the building and tell people how he felt. He had warned many friends ahead of the time to expect something big to happen that day. There were a few that actually knew exactly about his plan and had told others, but as far as I could tell, nobody received convictions for knowing about the shooting ahead of time. Once he smuggled the gun to school, he decided to just shoot into a crowd. He didn't have a very concrete plan. Later, Evan would say that he couldn't really grasp the consequences of his actions at the time, and indeed, most of the bullets he shot that morning merely hit walls and ceilings. However, when he shot into that crowd, his bullet did strike a 16-year-old student named Joshua Palacios. Despite the fact that Joshua was a handsome and well-known basketball player at the school, Evan would later claim that he hadn't shot specifically at him. Joshua was quickly flown to a hospital in Anchorage and would later die of his wounds. While Joshua was lying on the floor bleeding in the school, Principal Ron Edwards came over to check on him. When Evan saw the principal, he immediately shot him. Edwards, who was a former Marine who had done a tour in Vietnam, ended up dying at the school after being shot by a teenager. Within just a few minutes of the shooting beginning, Local police showed up and were pretty quickly able to talk Evan into throwing down his weapon. He ended up going to trial in 1998 and received a conviction and was sentenced to 200 years in prison. He has spent time in several correctional facilities over the years and is now in Wildwood Correctional in Kenai. In 2017, which was the 20th anniversary of the shooting, at Bethel High School, they enacted a program called Rachel's Challenge. The program was created by a nonprofit, which was started by the parents of Rachel Scott, the first victim at Columbine. They decided to create this program to be used in schools that focuses on kindness toward each other and which has the main aim of minimizing bullying by bringing students together. According to the program's website, rachelschallenge.org, over a million people participate in this program every year in schools all across the country. I find that pretty amazing. 
In 2017 also, Evan was interviewed by our local newspaper, the Alaska Dispatch. He was 36 at the time and had spent over half of his life in prison. He expressed a lot of regret over his teenage decisions. He said that at first he was unable to comprehend the damage he had caused. But when his mother passed away in 2005, he was finally able to understand the grief that he had caused for the families and friends of his victims. In retrospect, he wishes he had made it more clear to someone how bad things had become for him. He wishes there had been someone there for him, such as a stable adult figure in his life. Since being in prison, he has lost contact with most everyone that he knew. His parents unfortunately both died in 2005 and he rarely, if ever, receives visitors. His brothers are not in contact with him. And Sue, his guardian on the day of the shooting, left her job at Bethel High the same day and never went back. She said the shooting ruined her life for many years afterward, and she has not been in contact with Evan in many years. Evan has made do with what his life has become. He has no expectations of ever going free and won't be up for parole until he's 82. He spends his time doing various jobs around the prison, watching TV and listening to music. And despite the lack of contact from his friends and family members, he still gets letters from strangers who have heard his story and who have empathy for him. In 2001, victims' families would receive a $1 million settlement from the bus company that had taken Ramsey to school that day, after they argued that the bus driver should have noticed a student smuggling a gun on the bus. I don't know about you, but this is one of those stories that just isn't black and white. There are all these shades of gray, and Evan is one of the few mass shooters that I've ever had like a ton of empathy for because of what led to this event. He was just trapped in a miserable existence and felt like he couldn't really get out. And you know, a lot of people have been there. I've been there. I didn't act out by shooting anybody, thankfully, but I think a lot of you can probably identify with that feeling as well. And of course, I have so much sympathy for the families of the victims. Young Joshua Palacios was a very loved student, and Ron Edwards was obviously a hero who, you know, pretty much rushed into the line of fire to help a student after him being shot and didn't even worry about the risk of himself getting shot, which probably comes from his training as a Marine, and he was a true badass. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will try my damnedest to be back very soon with more fresh content. I've got several things in the works, but well, my body is pretty shitty and non-functional right now. So I'm trying my hardest. Thank you so much, everybody. I love you guys. And I will be back as soon as I can.